welcome to the War Studies podcast. We bring you world-leading research from the School of Security Studies at King's College London, the largest community of scholars in the world dedicated to the study of all aspects of security, defence and international relations. We aim to explore the complex realm of conflict because the study of war is fundamental to understanding the world we live in and the world we want to live in. State formation, the creation of a kind of a uniform standard of state authority has just not been part of the historical experience of countries in the developing world, especially the ones in which the state was built under under colonial rule. In this episode, I talk to Adnan Nassimullah about his new book, Patchwork States. He explains how modern day conflict and competition in South Asian countries have roots in the history of uneven state formation under colonial rule. On December 11th, 2019, the Modi government in India promulgated the Citizenship Amendment Act, which allowed non-Muslims from surrounding countries to become Indian citizens. Many saw this legislation as a fundamental challenge to principles of secularism enshrined in the Indian constitution. As a result, citizens staged mass protests throughout India throughout the winter. A group of Muslim women established an activist encampment, gathering together thousands in the cold, smoggy Delhi winter for four months between mid-December and mid-March. Student protests against the actions of the government met with violence from right-wing activists and from the police. Violent altercations between protests and the police on December 20th led to several deaths in the northern cities of Meerut and Kanpur. In the context of both these protests, Hindu nationalist activists conducted a pogrom among the lower middle class neighborhoods of northeastern Delhi, in which 53 were killed over the course of four days. Most of the fatalities were Muslim, and the police kept hundreds of the wounded from receiving medical attention while subjecting them to physical abuse. The riots started when a local leader of the ruling Bhartiya Janta Party, the BJP, called for the removal of a sit-in against the Citizenship Amendment Act. But the ensuing social violence fanned out throughout neighborhoods and targeted Muslim communities and businesses, following well-established patterns of Hindu-Muslim riots implicated in organized crime, police complicity, electoral politics, and the absence of social integration across religious communities. Yet there were other forms of political violence that continued at far removed from the CAA agitations and the Delhi program, based on ongoing conflicts with deep roots in post-independence India. The Armed Conflicts Location and Events Database reported 857 violent incidents, including 516 riots, during December 2019 and January and February of 2020, an average of just under 10 incidents of political violence a day. This brief survey of just three months suggests that Naples' characterization of the Indian polity in 1990 of 
consisting a million mutinies is just as relevant today. And it applies equally to India's neighbors as to India itself. My book, Patchwork States, argues that the varieties of violence described above are embedded within a much more expansive spatial politics of conflict and competition within and across South Asian countries. This spatial politics is the concrete consequence of how the state was built during colonial rule, which was without national coherence in mind. On this episode of the War Studies podcast, I'm speaking to Dr. Adnan Nassimullah, author and reader in international politics in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Adnan will be discussing his fascinating new book, Patchwork States, focusing on India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. He bridges the gap between the colonial past and present day to dissect why political violence varies greatly within the borders of national states in South Asia. Welcome to the podcast, Adnan. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So to dive straight in, or I guess rather start at your title, what do you mean by the term patchwork states? You sort of use the term patchwork states advisedly because I'm interested in looking at how the authority of the state works in different types of countries. And there's a long established tradition of thinking about how European states were built, that basically governments and autocrats would come in and smash all kinds of rival authorities from the state. In a famous book by Eugene Weber, peasants were beaten into Frenchmen, in which everyone spoke the same language, and then there was uniform spread of Frenchness and the authority of the French state throughout France's borders. When we're talking about countries in South Asia, like India, Pakistan, Bangladesh is a little bit of a special case. What happened instead was that the people who were building governance institutions or governance organizations were colonial rulers who were being led by other sorts of motivation, quite base motivations. In the book, I talk about fear, greed, and frugality, building different types of local state institutions and governance institutions, which are then, at the point of these countries becoming independent, basically stitched together within a sort of an overall framework of this is India, this is Pakistan, this is Bangladesh. But really what happened was that the processes of state formation and the creation of a kind of a uniform standard of state authority has just not been part of the historical experience of countries like the ones that I'm studying. And broadly, I would say countries in the developing world, especially the ones in which the state was built under, under colonial rule. Can you explain more about how India was governed? In what way was governance irregular? There's one very famous distinction that people talk about in terms of the Indian subcontinent under colonial rule, which was distinction between princely states. So these states that are ruled by kind of traditional rulers, uh, Nawabs or, or Maharajas, versus other parts of India that were ruled by British administrators in provinces or presidencies and then in districts. So that's a fairly well-known distinction between direct and indirect rule. What's also true is that different parts of India, both princely states and administrative districts, had different forms of state penetration for uh, the extraction of revenue which is, of course, a very important part of the processes of 
governance under colonial rule, which is to essentially get tax from the land. But different parts of districts and different parts of princely states are subject to different forms of revenue extraction. In some cases, revenue is extracted somewhat indirectly through big feudal landowners underneath which there are different layers of cultivators and peasants. So these are essentially tax farmers. In others, what you have is the state extracting revenue from cultivators fairly directly. And that translates into, in both administrative districts and princely states, different forms of state penetration in society. And then, of course, there are cities which have very different forms of governance. And then also tribal agencies and frontier agencies in which the footprint of the state was relatively light. So in the book, I sort of talk about six different categories of governance that covers all of what is now India, Pakistan and Bangladesh. In your book, you touch on the motivations for the enforcement of this governance structure, which you claim are based on British greed, fear and frugality. Can you explain what you mean by this? Colonial rulers, as they arrived in, and, and started conquering India in a very complicated process, which starts with free trade, but really free trade just means sort of monopoly trade for the East India Company. The greed element is about the greed through trade, but it's also the greed through extracting as much agricultural revenue as possible. But at the same time, you had very powerful Indian sovereignties, Indian political projects that were challenging British domination. So to, to give you just a couple of examples, you have the Maratha Confederacy, which used to be a big empire under uh, Chhatrapati Shivaji, which had then broken up into lots of different states in a confederacy, but are very powerful in a lot of Western India. And then the Kingdom of Mysore in the south, which is very powerful. And they're essentially really challenging British authority, especially in West, center and south of the country. And a slightly complicated story, but essentially in some places, it was mostly greed first, and then a kind of an anxiety or a fear of peasant rebellion, which leads to a certain form of governance. In other instances, what you have is this fear, which leads to significant armed conflict. Basically, a lot of late 18th and early 19th century is just wars of conquest and wars of managing these other powers that exist. And in some cases, they're actually allied with other foreign powers like the French, for example. And so in those situations, what you have is after the warfare, then there's a kind of a rebuilding of a system so that they can start extracting resources. And then, of course, frugality is a very important part of the story because it means that the East India Company in London, in its headquarters, didn't want to spend any money. They wanted to get the resources and they wanted to get the trade, but they didn't want to expend any money on especially expensive military armaments and soldiers and things like that. And so... Frugality is my way of thinking about the ways in which there was a sort of a cost-benefit analysis. But so as a result, what you don't have is any kinds of motivations to homogenize, to build huge state apparatus uh, during the colonial period. 
which is in general why India is under, there's under institutionalization. Institutions are weak, partly because that's what the British wanted. They didn't want to spend any money. So they were absolutely fine with uneven patchwork of governance. Why is it the case that since partition and independence in 1947, post-colonial governments in India and Pakistan have not been able to counteract this uneven style of governance? Post-colonial governments really tried, really attempted to sort of undo the legacies of colonial rule, which included evening out the sort of systems and processes of governance across their territories. But these post-colonial governments are facing multiple different pressures that prevent them from actually completely bulldozing uh, topographies of governance across these across these territories. The first is that you have different interests within these governments that are pushing for different kinds of resources to be spent in different areas. There are different politicians that would like either persistence or change. And the governments themselves have to face issues of insecurity against one another. What is also the case is that India and Pakistan, unlike other countries facing these kinds of legacies, didn't reconstruct the bureaucracy of the civil service. So essentially, they are trying to rebuild the master's house with the master's tools, because the civil service is still very much following the structures of the colonial bureaucracy. So for that reason, there's quite a significant convergence in, in terms of the varieties of governance. There are no more princely states in Pakistan from the 1960s, in India, a decade and a half before. But there's still variation. And that variation is manifested in practice in the way that the state and society relates to one another at the local level and the district level throughout these countries. And you argue that the uneven way in which state and society relate to one another have created patterns of violence in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Can you explain what these patterns are? Key sort of conceptual distinction in terms of thinking about the patterns of different types of violence is to make a distinction between what I call sovereignty neutral violence and sovereignty contesting violence. The violence that's contesting sovereignty are ones in which there are groups that want to change the very fact of the state's authority over some or all of its territory. And then the state violently trying to protect uh, its own authority over that territory, right? So best example of that is Maoist conflict in, in India, in which there's actually quite a significant distance between state and mostly tribal society. In Pakistan, you have this with the Taliban insurgency in the federally administered tribal areas. So these are sort of examples of places in which you see mostly sovereignty contesting violence. But there are also lots of places in both India and Pakistan in which the greater preponderance of sovereignty neutral violence. So the, the best example there would be ethnic riots or electoral violence in which the, the nature of the state's authority, nature of the state's sovereignty or the monopoly of the legitimate use of 
force over its territory is not fundamentally being challenged. And in fact, what groups are doing is competing with one another violently over taking control of the state and taking control of its resources. So fundamentally, the relationship between uh, state and society impacts what the state's authority looks like and what violence means in terms of in terms of that authority. Yeah, and I think establishing that connection between present day conflict and the role that Britain and other colonial powers have and are still playing in this is so important because we're not taking responsibility. I don't think, for example, I was taught about British colonial rule in India during my early education, yet it's so important to understand the world we live in today and our lasting impact. Just to interject, I think that we're now at a point in which people are taking the legacies of colonial rule as important, even in, in terms of British history. But it turns out that these stories are so much more complicated and varied than simply just saying, and for the record, I feel like colonial rule was evil, but it was interestingly evil. It was evil in very, very different ways in different places, in ways that can actually help us understand contemporary politics. And, and, and again, not to make the argument that India and Pakistan have been locked in ever since colonial rule, but rather politics shapes other politics, which explains the world that we live in. But I mean, I think that the first step is, and this is what I'd like my book to sort of speak to, is to, the first step is to really understand what the nature of colonial rule was, which was not a very powerful thing. I mean, in some senses, in many ways, it was quite weak, but it was able to sort of integrate itself and create all of these kind of perverse outcomes, but in very, very different ways, in very, very different contexts. Do you think making this connection and identifying these patterns can in any way help address violence and conflict within these countries? This book is, is, is more about sort of staring, staring into, the, into the void more than it is about uh, coming up with policy solutions, unfortunately. But I think it does force us to, and hopefully force policymakers and development aid, but also foreign policy, to think about the state in a slightly different way. The state is, in my own sort of view, the most fascinating and complex set of institutions anywhere in in Britain, in India, in Pakistan, in the United States, it doesn't, doesn't matter where. And so where I'd like this to do is to give people sort of a more of a sense of what are the ways in which the state is impacting key questions like violence and key questions like sort of democratic practice and and, 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 and other things, while keeping in mind that history is not determinative. It's just history enlight- enlightens, and I think that especially this sort of comparative history um, helps us understand the sort of roots of where we are so that we understand more of what the world looks like, and especially what India, Pakistan, Bangladesh look like at the moment, which then hopefully might inform scholars and policymakers. Do you think the concept of patchwork states applies to any other countries that have been colonized by the West? 
Oh, no, absolutely. So in the last chapter of the book, which I would highly recommend, if I do say so myself, <laughs> I sort of take a huge step back and think about, uh, firstly, other countries in South Asia. So Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Afghanistan, but also to other countries in East and Southeast Asia. They were colonized by different, by the Dutch, by the by, by the French, and ultimately actually by sort of the Japanese empire, and how the patchworkness, or the relative patchworkness of, of these countries, where Vietnam, for example, was once part of French Indochina, which included a sort of a directly ruled territory around what was then Saigon, is now Ho Chi Minh City in the south, but also two other princely states, and then Cambodia and Laos, which were both sort of princely in nature. And then thinking about things that are not so relevant, hasn't been that relevant in the history of South Asia, but incredibly important for these other parts of the world, like uh, the level of Japanese imperialism and colonization, and then the strength of communist and anti-communist movements after the Japanese were defeated. And then later on in the book, I basically talk about the British and American empires more generally, and with the American empire talking about making a distinction between the kind of inland empire, the imperial project or the colonizing project that the original 13 states of America would then spread over the entirety of the continent, which destroyed sort of, for example, Mexican sovereignty, but also a lot of indigenous um, nations and indigenous sovereignties. While, while also talking about uh, America's sort of more overall imperial influence over the Southern Hemisphere, Central and South America. So that chapter sort of tries to pan very much outward into thinking about what does it mean to have patchworkness and the different ways in which direct and indirect rule, fear, greed, and frugality can help us to understand comparative colonialism and imperialism in a much in a sort of a wider scope. And one distinction you make is that Bangladesh is not a patchwork state. No. Can you tell me why you still decided to talk about Bangladesh within your book? Bangladesh used to be East Pakistan. So Pakistan at partition in 1947 between, between sort of India and Pakistan, where the Muslim majority and the in the Hindu majority sort of areas of India got separated. There was essentially two parts of Pakistan. There's the Pakistan that we know today, which was West Pakistan. And then across about a thousand miles, there was East Pakistan, which used to be is the eastern half of a united province of Bengal, which was in, in fact one of the most wealthy and powerful and important parts of colonial India. And because of the nature of partition itself, East Pakistan, East, East Bengal and East Pakistan is basically one whole patch in the patchwork sort of framework. And then once it becomes independent, there are, you know, two big cities and then there's one frontier area that is sort of governed somewhat different, differently. But most of the rest of, of Bangladesh, which includes uh, more than 150 uh, million people, are sort of governed in a fairly uniform way. 
in terms of agricultural society, which means that its politics are very, very different from both India and Pakistan. Yeah, and you mentioned that the politics of Bangladesh is focused around how it sees itself as a state. Yes. yes. And so that basically the idea is that instead of having all of these sort of local power holders that are, have, are engaging in their own relationship to the state, instead the state itself is what's at stake. And so the question is whether Bangladesh is going to be a sort of a a secular Bengali nationalist state in society, or is it going to be sort of um, more integrated into the Islamic world? And that was that has been the basis of political competition between uh, the Bangladesh National Party, which is more conservative, and then the Avami League, which was the, the founding political organization, which is much more militantly secular. We're now moving on to our features section, where we find out about the researcher behind the research. And Adnan, your research interests lie in political economy, including populism, state formation and political order, specifically focused on the Indian subcontinent. What sparked your interest in this area? I've always been fascinated by what South Asia can actually help like, teach us um, in terms of politics of the rest of the world. And there's something about the commitments that different governments have had to try and reverse the legacies of colonial rule, but also understand where states come from and then what states can do given the resources that they're faced that really has kept me grounded in an in a region that I know fairly well. And what I try to do is to give India and Pakistan and to some extent Bangladesh sort of equal billing. And so in part, when you compare the two and sort of think maybe think about what is common between the two rather than what is different, it gets us to think about developing countries in a different way and to think about politics of violence and the politics of development in a slightly in a slightly different way. And so I just think that it's just such a f complex part of the world in which you're subjecting concepts and ideas and theories that are mostly in the context of Western academia focused on the West, focused on countries like countries in Europe or uh, countries like the United States, to think about that in relation to quite a different geographical context and then think about how they, how that might inform us moving forward, in some senses to almost decolonize our own understanding of how political science works, right? It doesn't, it's not just all about these countries not fulfilling what they're supposed to be doing as European countries that just haven't been able to cut it, but rather to think about the very specific dynamics and, um, and, and processes that, that lead to where we are on its own terms. We've touched on this slightly throughout the interview, 
But what led you to write Patchwork States? Well, I tell a story in the uh, preface to the book about a, a time in which I was doing fieldwork on, on my earlier work in Pakistan in 2007 and hearing George W. Bush saying that the Taliban were hiding out in the tribal areas of Pakistan, that this, would, that this was wild country, that it was wilder than the Wild West. And what that made me do is to think about what, critically, what was the difference between, for example, the tribal areas on the edges of British colonial authority in, in India versus uh, the American frontier and thinking about what, what does state building mean and what are its consequences. Of course, the consequences are radically different. The, the Western frontier in the United States was, quote, one, unquote, which meant that there was a lot of indigenous sovereignties that were systematically annihilated. And you had railroads and you had grazing land and you had mineral extraction. Whereas in the, the tribal areas, what used to be called the federally administered tribal areas of Pakistan, now integrated into the rest of the country, up until fairly recently, they were treated apart as sort of frontier tribal zones that had their own form of governance. So the story started with that and then me thinking more critically about an entire span of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh and thinking about what are the historical roots of difference in governance and where historically that comes from and then what are its contemporary consequences, not just in terms of insurgent warfare as you saw with the Taliban in Pakistan, but also, for example, Hindu-Muslim riots, electoral violence, and also different forms of development. And so those those different ideas started integrating themselves in, into little bits of a, a larger framework, which was the book. Patchwork States is your second book, your first being Development After Statism, Industrial Firms and Political Economy of South Asia. What has been the highs and lows of the writing process? I think that there is a way in which writing these books just feels so important because what you're able to do is to integrate lots of different things into a coherent framework that you can't do if you're just looking at little bits of things uh, in a lot of the rest of our academic work. Honestly, the lows, I think, are the fact that writing books is a very lonely business. You're in the archives by yourself or you're in your office or at home by yourself trying to sort of work through these ideas. I've been so incredibly fortunate to have all sorts of interlocutors and friends who've helped me through different parts of the manuscript. But ultimately, there is just a lot of typing by yourself. How long did it take you to write Patchwork States? Well, so the story that I was telling you about George W. Bush started in 2007. I started working on uh, various aspects of the thing through articles and other things from around 2009 onwards. And so I've published a few articles on sort of different aspects of the sort of patchwork states concept. 
But the actual writing, I think, probably took, it probably started in earnest around about the time that my first book was published in 2017. Uh, but then, of course, uh, publication takes a very long time as well. So I, I don't think I was sort of working flat out um, for more than maybe three years. But it, um, and, 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 and a lot of it was written through, throughout the, the pandemic. Um, sort of the year before the pandemic and the year of the pandemic was a, was a lot of, was the time. So, so maybe 2019 and 2020 were the sort of main, main years of the book. So it's a, it's a pandemic uh, product as well. Pandemic baby. <laughs> it's a pandemic baby, or at least, at least half of its gestation was <laughs> pandemic oriented. It's not, it, it's not the worst way of, of dealing with lockdowns. I don't know whether it's the most emotionally healthy, but it's probably not the least emotionally healthy way of managing. I think I spent most of my lockdown just baking and eating, which was definitely not the healthiest. I feel like you're, you have more product out of this, I just love this book. <laughs> you can't beautiful. eat this book. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. You're more than welcome. You've been listening to the War Studies podcast, produced and edited by Lizzie Ellen, Lauren Midgley and Anna Wilson from the School of Security Studies at King's College London. For more information on our work and sign up to receive regular updates, please visit our website, which you'll find in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on your preferred podcast provider. It really helps us reach more listeners. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the War Studies Podcast.